thank you for that, Nick. Uh, indeed, there will be a feast this morning, <laughs> um, a sort of everlasting meal indeed, as we can keep on chewing on the truth of God's word. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, as you know, and last week, uh, Jesus went to Gethsemane to pray, and he was arrested by soldiers, and then he is going to face a trial, a courtroom of sorts, first by the, before the high priest at the Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate after that, and Peter is also going to face his own little interrogation in the middle. So I invite you to turn to God's word, Mark 14, we're going to start at verse 53, and continue right down through verse 20 of chapter 15. Beloved, listen to God's word. They took Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet, not even their testimony, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, Peter denied it. After a while, those standing near Peter said, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. 
Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they simply shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Basketball great Charles Barkley once claimed he was misquoted in a book about him. The book was his autobiography. Let that one translate for a second. I want to talk to you this morning, people of God, a little bit about truth and specifically about the politics of truth. It is axiomatic in Scripture, which means it goes without saying, and it has until recently almost been universally recognized that pursuing truth, understanding it, recognizing it, possessing it was a good thing, a great good thing. Multitudes of voices have attested to this, both Christian and non-Christian alike. Truth, one has said, is the greatest gift of life, and love is the exercise of that truth. Truth is not always popular, another has said, but it is always right. If any man can convince me, the second century Roman philosopher Marcus Aurelius opined, and bring home to me by argument that I do not act or think aright, Gladly will I change, for I search after truth. I search after truth by which man never yet was harmed, but he is harmed who abideth on still in his deception and ignorance. The 17th century English poet John Dryden put it simpler and more practically when he said this, Truth is the foundation of all knowledge and the cement of all societies. Without truth, a society will collapse. The 18th century polymath Johann Goethe, or as we say in English sometimes, Goethe, put it this way, devotion to truth is the first and last thing we demand of genius. The genius is the one who seeks after and finds out the truth. The 19th century American author Emily Dickens went even further than this, saying with rhyme, Truth is as old as God, his twin identity, 
and will endure as long as he, a co-eternity. And in this, Dickinson was only echoing Augustine, the 4th century Christian who testified that, where I found truth, there I found my God, who is the truth itself. And in this, Augustine was only learning from his Lord, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Surely, folks, it is not hard to agree with the generations who have gone on before. Truth is a great good. This is true. But there's another truth about truth, and one that must always be reckoned with, and it's this, that truth, although good, although a great good, truth is also costly. Often the truth can hurt, even if it's good for you. The truth will make you free, Tom DeMarco once said, echoing Jesus, but first, it will make you miserable. The truth to the overwhelming majority of mankind, H.L. Mencken agreed, is frequently indistinguishable from a headache. To be sure, the truth is good, a great good, but the truth can also hurt and be costly. And this is why frequently we humans in our sins so often run away from the truth, avoid it, hide it, twist it. It's why we lie, confabulate, fib, distort, deceive. It's why, to put it succinctly, we tend to engage in the politics of truth in accord with the usual ways of the world. We, send into do- we descend into doing, in other words, what everyone besides Jesus, the servant girl, and, as it turns out, the rooster, in our passage for today, descend into doing. We give up on a commitment to the truth. We embrace lies, willful ignorance, and language games instead, because truly the truth is frequently too costly. Just look at our text and how Mark exposes the casualties of truth within a trial or courtroom motif, which is, of course, all about establishing the truth. The thing that's to be established in a court of law is the truth. The thing that's to be sought after in a court of law is the truth. The thing that's to be spoken of in a court of law at a trial is the truth. The judgment that the judge is to make is, after all, the truth as best he can know it. Look at our text. Mark, as Mark is apt to do, as we have seen uh, previously in this series, uses a sandwiching technique, as you can see very clearly. We have trial mo- a trial or an interrogation, followed by another interrogation, followed by another interrogation. You have Jesus before the high priest and Sanhedrin interrogated in their court of law, and then you have Pilate at the end interrogating Jesus and making a judgment there, and then in the middle you have this interrogation of Peter where Peter goes through a semi-kind of trial courtroom with the judges before the servant girl and the others. And as we are led to the crucifixion of truth, the ultimate truth where Jesus is led to the cross, we have the casualty of truth all through. Because indeed, for the actors here at this time, in this context, the truth is too costly. With the religious leaders, for example, to admit Jesus' innocence or at least not lie about his guilt would cost them their positions in society. And so they lie and distort and produce false witnesses. And with Pilate to stand up and defend the truth of Jesus' innocence, 
as he knows it, as he claims it, would cost Pilate his peace for the night, if not for much, much longer. And so even though he knows perfectly well that Jesus is innocent, he too refuses to stand up for the truth. He hands Jesus over to be crucified. He lets the true brigand, Barabbas, who is a murderer, go. Pilate runs a kangaroo court for political expediency. And then with all the muscle in our text, notice the balancing of muscle in our text with the trial before the Sanhedrin at the end and then the trial before Pilate at the end. Both the Jewish muscle in the form of bullies in Mark 14, 65, as well as the Roman muscle in the form of soldiers in Mark 15, 16 through 20. They too do not embrace the truth. To acknowledge Jesus' innocence would cost them their twisted sense of fun, which includes physical torture and mockery of a helpless man. You'd think they'd give this up for the truth, but no. So deep does the depravity of human beings go, the willful ignorance of the heart. And then Peter. Peter too. The truth is too costly even for Peter, who loves Jesus and has followed him for at least three years now and given up everything to follow him. Because to admit the truth of his association with Jesus right now will likely cost Peter his political freedom, if not his very life. And so Peter flat out lies, not once, not twice, but three times to save his own skin. I don't know him. I don't even understand what you're talking about. All of the characters in our text, beloved, minus Jesus, the servant girl, and the rooster, engage in a politics of truth in the world's way, which amounts to lies, dodges, misquotes, deliberate misunderstandings, and willful ignorance. And they engage in a politics of truth in this way because flat out the truth is considered too costly. And you know, there is really nothing new under the sun. It's always been this way, that for us at certain times, in certain circumstances, the truth becomes too costly, and it always will be this way. We've experienced this in our own lives, I am sure, and could share painful stories of how we've lied even to loved ones in order to save ourselves. And we see it writ large in our world today with the widespread sacrifice of truth. In fact, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever seen spin like I saw it in the mainline news over the past year. What was true seemed to depend on what news channel you were watching. And the same truths were always found on the same news channels, even though they contradicted the truths that were being espoused on other news channels. It was quite an experience to bounce back and forth between, between certain major news outlets. Truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. All that matters is impressions, pushing one's agenda, one's ideology, giving people maybe what they want to be true. People tend not to investigate matters, but immediately assume that one answer fits all and impose their prefabricated ideas or judgments on every new situation. Nuance today is being more and more ignored. Scientific evidence is being ignored. Discussion and debate is forbidden. And in the political sphere, slogans and sound bites are replacing coherent argument and long-form thought. It's a disaster. It's the death of truth. 
because everyone believes they have something to gain from lies, maybe even just our own personal comfort. But beloved, I think that we do need to recognize in our so-called postmodern world where we are being taught that there is no such thing as truth except the truth that there is no truth, and I haven't quite figured that one out yet, in this postmodern world, the pursuit of truth is going the way of the dodo bird and being replaced by simply accepting whatever is socially acceptable. Popular opinion seems frequently to hold more sway than what is actually real. Opinion polls are weightier than rock. We live in dubious times. And the dubity is redoubled, I must say, because of how we are being conditioned to treat the truth, to feel about the idea of truth. Think about, for a moment, advertising in the media, which we've got buzzing in our homes or on our phones or in our earbuds with relentless frequency. The media advertising industry has gone a long ways to making us completely immune to feeling outrage about the loss of truth because we become accustomed, haven't we, to manipulation and to spin. It's become normal for us. In fact, in advertising, we're used to outright baloney, balderdash, malarkey, ballyhoo. You pick the adjective, and we're fed this junk continually, and we eat it. It works on us. I remember hearing when I was in my early 20s, for example, the closing line of an ad on CKNW for BMW. Quote, at $35,500, how can you afford not to drive a BMW? Well, let me consider why I'm broke. I'm a seminarian. Or a common jewelry ad, diamonds are forever. That is bunk. Diamonds are not forever. It is manipulative marketing frosting. Or how about this one? Coke is it. Coke is what? What on earth does that mean? How do you do decode that advertising slogan? It's pure impressionism divorced from reality. Or to pick on another pop company, how about Pepsi? One of their slogans, the taste of a new generation. How could a sugary brown drink be the taste of a new generation? What does that mean? How can I evaluate whether that is true or not? You cannot. Or here's one of my favorites, Wonder Bread. An essential part of a good childhood. That's right. White flour, mostly sugar, candy bread, scant nutritional value. What childhood could possibly good, be good without that? Or how about an older one for some of our seniors? They might remember from their childhood. American Tobacco Company slogan for lucky cigarettes. Quote, light and lucky, and you'll never miss the sweets that make you fat. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. Well, besides not being free, tobacco companies already knew in those days that smoking was causing cancer. But hey, we have a product to sell, so it might kill you, but at least you'll be skinny when they're lifting you into the coffin. Beloved, truth may be good, truth may be great, as scripture and common sense tell us it is, but the truth can also be costly. And as a result, the default human condition is to fabricate, manipulate, distort, lie, suppress, and ignore inconvenient truths. 
will even engage in the Hail Mary of all Hail Marys to avoid facing the truth. And I'm talking about a football term here, please, not the uh, Catholic practice. As we're doing it today, which is to say that after all, there really is no such thing as truth, except your own feelings and your own perspective. All truth is subjective. There's no objective thing as truth. In this context, trying to tell the truth and pursue it when it is costly is going to be very difficult. But here's the thing and the challenge for us this morning. We Christians, we 21st century followers of Jesus are not permitted by our Lord to engage in the politics of truth in the way our world does, which is to say by avoiding the truth and or twisting it or engaging language games where we redefine things to make unthings sound true and all the like of that. We, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, are not given the luxury as Christians to ignore facts or fail to be rigorous in our pursuit of truth, scientific truth or moral truth or spiritual truth, none of it. But instead, in our love for God, in our love for one another, in our love for the world, we are to show a radical, unflagging, unfailing love for and commitment to the truth. Wherever we find it, I might add, in the great wide world outside, as generally revealed by God through the powers of scientific observation, or in sacred scripture, where God specially reveals himself to us in truths as the truth. All truth is God's truth. And so we Christians are to be people who live of and by and in search of the truth, especially when it comes to the gospel. As Paul reminded Timothy, Timothy, he said, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Yes, Timothy, false teachers will come. False doctrines will be introduced. Yes, people motivated by things that are not the gospel will arise and employ motivated reasoning to bend the truth to get what they want. But you, Timothy, you, Church of Jesus, you must remain committed to the truth. It's your vocation in the world to testify to the truth and to live it out as best as you can. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right thinking, right living, and the promotion of it. Because without truth, chaos. Without truth, death. How can I put this? I think most people I have encountered and most people I know have an intrinsic, natural, strong aversion usually to moths. Moths tend to be rather ugly. They've got big bulging eyes. They sometimes have really big bulbous bodies. When they land on you, they leave a little strange, mysterious stardust on your shoulder. We kind of get the warbles when we see moths. We don't like them very well. But the reality for me is that even though I do feel the same way mostly about their physical appearance, they're kind of freakish and strange and ugly, nonetheless, I appreciate moths. And I do, friends, because have you ever watched one at night? Almost always, even though their flight patterns are strange, the moth always seems to fly towards the light. It has an enduring, unsuppressible love for the light. And the reality is, this is our vocation as Christians in the world. 
No matter how ugly it makes us, no matter how freakish we seem, we are to pursue the light of God's truth and proclaim it, even when it's unpopular, even when it might cost our life, and especially at the point where society is under the attack of the evil one. The church, friends, is to be God's moth. Our sisters and brothers in Christ throughout history, regardless of denomination, please, have agreed with this, even though they've said it in different language. A church which abandons truth, Hans Kung has rightly said, abandons itself. It is the truth alone, testified John Owens, that capacitates any soul to glorify God. The history of the church, said Blaise Pascal, who also invented, by the way, the vacuum. The history of the church is the history of truth. Never let us be guilty, cautioned J.C. Riles, of sacrificing any portion of the truth on the altar of peace. The simple step of a courageous individual pleaded Scholz and Nietzsche after escaping the horrors of the gulags is not to take part in the lie. One word of truth outweighs the world. Not to oppose error, Pope Felix III stressed, is to approve of it. And not to defend truth is to suppress it. And finally, if I profess with the loudest voice the great reformer Martin Luther once said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. The truth may be costly, sisters and brothers in Christ, but our job as Christians, our job as a church, is to pursue it, defend it, proclaim it, and promote it. And this truth is redoubled, I should add, when the gospel is at stake, or when foundational scriptural truths are at stake, or when those who cannot speak for themselves, the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized, are involved. As with the baby in the womb, for example, or the clinically depressed whom our government has just said can end their life anytime they want and might be urged to do so by bad actors, or the poor and downtrodden who have no voice of their own. We are to speak the truth on their behalf and fight for it. But please hear me. This does not mean that we become bombastic or unnecessarily offensive or lacking in humility when the truth is uncertain. Absolutely not. Our job to pursue and promote the truth as Christians does not mean that the more the world thinks of us as arrogant jerks, that that is evidence of our greater faithfulness to God. God forbid. We Christians are to be gentle, wise, prudent, timely, thoughtful, apt, respectful, to give no reason for offense in all the hows of our speech. This is biblical. If the truth is to be offensive, then we must let it be offensive and not our mode of approach. The truth and not us must be the thing to cause the offense. And when it is the truth that is causing the offense, then we must be brave. We must stand and say we can do no other. And I've got to say, I cannot tell you 
Beloved, how difficult I believe as a pastor it's going to be for us Christians and for the church as a whole in the West in the days ahead. Here in the affluent, comfortable, therapeutic West to stand up for the truth when it comes to certain subjects. I can't tell you how hard it is for me sometimes as a pastor to stand behind this pulpit and to utter certain scriptural teachings, let alone to do that in the world. Human sexuality, let's just say it, is an obvious example today. The friction is all around us, even within the walls of the church. It can be costly to talk about human sexuality. The fact of man and woman, as Scripture teaches, is another example. And there is more and more pre- as there is more and more pressure in society to say that foundational biological distinctions don't matter, and what matters is one's internal sense of identity. I'm not talking about not being compassionate and all the like of that, about with people's feelings. But will we um, speak the truth when it comes to things like this? It's going to be really, really difficult. I think an issue I just mentioned a moment ago, the issue of assisted suicide, is another example which now flies under the banner of sanitized language to shift our thinking on the matter. So instead of suicide, we think of, think of it as medical assistance in dying, even when those who are being put up for this death are not actually dying. It's not helping them die. They're perfectly physically healthy and we're actually abruptly ending their lives. And these issues, I think, are only the tip of the iceberg today. Because what if we don't, as Christians, believe either capitalism unchecked or forced communism is the way? Neither of those options. What if we're politically neither right nor left, but committed to the politics of Jesus and the politics of Scripture that rises above these politics and is going to challenge both right and left? How will that leave us in a cancel culture where wrong think is beginning to be punished for upsetting new orthodoxies. I'll tell you what, church, and I'm not trying to get into these issues right now, but I'm just trying to say that I think it is going to be difficult for us in the days ahead that we're going to get caught in the crosshairs if we're going to stand up for the truth. Soon now, we're going to be called to suffer. It cost Jesus his life to stand up for the truth, It has cost many, many, many of our sisters and brothers in the past their lives, and it's going to cost us too. So here's the thing. Are we going to be strong enough, brave enough, courageous enough when the day comes to do what we're called to do as God's people, to stand up for the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, the truth of God's world as we find it? Jesus said that the world hates me because I tell it that what it does is evil. So our Lord's words. And he promised that the same would be true of us. Are we going to be strong enough? If I am honest with myself, I am not sure that we are going to be all the time. I think we, the church in the West, are rather weak, actually. I think we're too comfortable We've had it far too good for far too long. We've absorbed the atmosphere of soft thinking around us and elevated oftentimes our feelings and our choices and our desires to a position of supreme importance. 
We've been more categorized at times and shaped by TV sitcoms and late night shows and Oprah and Cosmo and Teen Vogue and Facebook and Instagram than we have by Scripture. And I include myself in this. And I do not, please, say any of this to shame us. I think it's actually a fair description of what's been going on, what's happening to us. And in this, there's nothing new under the sun. Whenever Israel became affluent, Israel also became weakened by the society around them. This is not trying to fearmonger. This is simply trying to describe where I believe we're at. I hope I'm wrong, but I fear we're weak. And with that fear, I say, what can make us stronger? How can we become prepared? Well, Jesus models two things for us today, and I'm going to be brief here. Far, far more might be said from Scripture at large, but Jesus models two things for us in his passion narrative as he makes his way to suffer for the truth and pay the ultimate cost to set us free. First, what can we do to make us strong? It's Gethsemane. It's prayer. We must be on our knees in prayer a lot, continually. Before Jesus faces his greatest hour, he goes up to Gethsemane to pray. This is his greatest weapon and his greatest defense to become conscious of the Father, to bask in his presence, to dwell in the sweetness of his intimacy, and notice, if you go back to that passage, to surrender his will to the will of the Father so that he will be willing to pay the cost of truth. Jesus is fortified in the truth, friends, and in his resolve to live it by spending time in the presence of the Father, becoming conscious, we might say, of the capital R reality, behind all the small r realities. And we must do likewise if we are to face the days ahead. We must be at prayer with the triune God. So in our mind's eye, the almighty God is the biggest reality we face and not all the littler littler things of this world. That's the first thing. And here's the second thing we must do if we're going to become strong. We must remember. Remember that although we will face trials today, And we will be put in many courtrooms and face many judgments for what we believe and for what we claim. We must actively remember that for all of us humans, all of us, at the end of the day, there is just one judge that we humans will need to satisfy and one jury and one interrogation in one courtroom that we will stand alone before. We will, all of us, teach his scripture and Jesus in our text one day stand before the heavenly throne room of the Almighty God and need to give an answer for the lives we have lived and the words we have spoken, whether true or false, whether empty or full, whether good or bad. In Matthew 12, 36, our Lord says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every word spoken, every word, every deed, every one, as they stand before the judge of all. As Jesus faced the courtrooms and trials and interrogations of the world for his life and words, according to their politics of truth, Jesus stayed focused on the courtroom of all courtrooms, the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Judge sits on his throne. 
God's politics mattered to Jesus above all. And you'll say, well, where do you see this in our text? How do you know that Jesus was focused on the Supreme Court and the Supreme Judge, and that's where he was getting the strength to continue on with the truth as he knew it? Well, our text is very interesting. You may notice that Jesus speaks twice and twice alone in our text when it comes to issues of his own identity. For the rest of it, he's silent, which, by the way, is also a testament to the truth because he's telling his audiences there that he is the suffering servant of God, according to Isaiah, who remains silent when he is accused. It's a testament to the truth of who he is, his silence. But when Jesus does speak, it's very, very interesting what he says. Before Pilate, when asked, are you the king of the Jews? He says, yeah, it's as you say. Or it could be, you say that I am? The Greek is a little ambiguous there. But then, before the high priest, who asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus replies, ego eimi. I am. It's God's self-designating name. I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the, white, the mighty one coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, what is that a reference to? Well, beloved, Jesus is referring to the scene in Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man is put on the throne. It is a courtroom scene where the nations of the world are brought before the ancient of days, God himself's heavenly throne room and courtroom, where the books are opened and the court proceedings go. They are found guilty, but as they are found guilty, suddenly we are introduced to this, this mysterious one called a son of man, who is coming in glory with the clouds of heaven. And he is deemed just, and he is deemed true. And as a result, he is given power and authority and dominion over all nations eternally. The verdict for the Son of Man is that he is true. And as Jesus goes to face his questioners, Jesus is focused on the reality that the one he stands before and will stand before, the one who will vindicate him or not for the life he has lived, is the one who sits on the heavenly throne above, the supreme judge of all, in the supreme court of all. And this is the one Jesus keeps his mind on. He is the one who's going to be deemed innocent by God, even though the world found him guilty. He's going to be deemed worthy of life even beyond death, despite the fact that Pilate and the world's judgment is that he was worthy of death. Where does God's verdict about Jesus ring true? In the resurrection where God reverses the verdict of the world. We are to see the whole thing as a court case. And the resurrection of Jesus as the supreme judge of all reversing the decision of the world. What we said there about Jesus on the cross was not true. He was innocent. He is true. And yet he did this to forgive us of all our sins. And the point is, should we be courageous? And if we are to be courageous in the days ahead, we too must not only be in prayer before our Lord, becoming conscious of the reality above all realities, but we must also remember that at the end of the day, we are going to stand before the throne room of God and need to give an answer for the lives that we have lived. 
to be sure, one of the truths that we Christians will need to say and will say is, I have not lived truly, and that will be to speak truly. But God will also want an accounting. Are we going to be strong? Let us continue in prayer and also continue to hold in our mind's eye the reality of the Ancient of Days. Let us pray together. Give us courage, O Lord, to witness to you faithfully in our day as we pursue the truth, proclaim it, and practice it to your glory and the good of our fellow man. Let us do this with a light touch, always with the utmost of compassion, with the utmost of tenderestness. Prepare us, O God, through the blood of Jesus and a life lived faithfully and gratefully in response to the gift of salvation to be inspected by you and to have you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.